Isaiah chapter 14, we'll be looking at verses 24 through 32 this morning as we continue the, uh, the look at the different oracles of judgment concerning the nations. We'll be dealing with two different nations this morning, one that we've, well, we've dealt with both of them in the past, one recently and one not so recently. But before we do that, before we go to his word, let's go to him once more in prayer and ask for him to help us this morning. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we come to you, uh, as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us with it because we are in need of it. We come to it uh, expecting and, and wanting to learn, but we also come to it um, with our own bent on things, with our own sinfulness, with our own desire for this word to actually be about us and our heroic deeds. Instead, they're about you and the good deeds you have done. And so, Lord, we pray that you would convict us of our sin and that you would lead us to the truth as we study your words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I read through this, we have this theme that is developing and will continue to develop as we go through the the book of Isaiah. And I think Isaiah is one of its major themes is the will of God. And I'm reading a book that is called Crimes That Changed Our World. It's a very, very good book. I encourage you to check it out. I think it was written maybe last year or published last year. And the thesis of the book is basically taking these horrible events that have happened in history and it's showing the good things or the things, and not necessarily all good, that have come from them. One story that really caught my attention was the story of a drug called sulfonilamide. If you've ever heard of sulfonilamide, it's actually an early antibiotic. And like most medicines, it, when they brought it to the scene, it didn't taste very good. So this, uh, this chemist decided that he was going to add something to it in order to, for it to taste better. And it had to be something that's able to dissolve lots of uh, different things. And so there's this other chemical called diethylene glycol. That tastes and smells a lot like raspberries. Uh, It's a common component in things like antifreeze and brake fluid and polyurethane. Uh, But the chemist didn't know that it was poisonous, so he dissolved the antibiotic and it shipped it out by the gallon. Hundreds of gallons of this stuff. Over a hundred people died before it was pulled from the shelves. Had no idea this was even a thing. Well, because of the public outcry associated with this, the, the government got involved and formed what would eventually be called the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. Whatever they become today, whatever you think about them, they began as an organization that made things like medicine testing a requirement, a thing that we're all thankful for. Something bad caused this good thing to occur. There are lots of stories like that in the book. The book is about that. I encourage you to pick it up. Even these very tragic events that occur, something really good comes out of it. It's not unlike that, again, in our study of the book of Isaiah. Lots of tragedy. Lots of destruction. This whole section, through the next ten or so chapters, is about what God is going to do to the nations that don't obey Him. And it's it's not hold hands and walk together. It's bad. He's going to give judgment to all of them. And so, what good can come of this? We're going to be studying how nation after nation fall under the judgment of God. 
God's judgments are always good. They're always right. But it doesn't mean that things aren't tragic on our end as we look at them. We don't stand by and cheer while the Assyrians are destroyed, for instance. We mourn them because they didn't know the true Savior of the world. Like so many tragedies in Scripture, all leads, all of them lead to something good, a good end. That end is determined by God beforehand. And God actually gets to determine what good is. Were it up to us to determine the ends and the means, they would be entirely self-serving. We would get to decide what's good, which is never a good thing. When God does, he brings about his own redemptive plan to see his name glorified and his own people saved. So as we look at this idea, we're going to consider three ideas in our passage today. The plan of God for Assyria the plan of Philistia, and the plan of redemption. So with that, let's look together at the text. Isaiah 14, starting at verse 24. Let's stand together in the honor of the reading of God's Word. (coughs) The oracle of hosts has sworn, or the Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains trample him underfoot, and his yoke shall depart from them, and his burden from their shoulder. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? In the year that King Ahaz died came this oracle. Rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you, that the rod that struck you is broken. For from the serpent's root will come forth an adder, and its fruit will be a flying, fiery serpent. And the firstborn of the poor will graze, and the needy lie down in safety. But I will kill your root with famine, and your remnant remnant it will slay. Wail, O gate, cry out, O city, melt in fear, O Philistia, all of you. For smoke comes out of the north, and there is no straggler in his ranks. What will one answer the messengers of the nation? The Lord has founded Zion, and in her the afflicted of his people find refuge. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So just a little bit of background. We have two different groups of people on display here, the Assyrians and the Philistines. With Assyria, we've talked a great deal about them already in previous chapters as we've had several oracles already concerning their future demise. This is just another short one here uh, outlining that same thing. For Philistia, or the Philistines, we spent some time with them when we studied 1 Samuel years ago. And as you remember, and you probably remember this from you know the many flannel graph Sunday school lessons that you had, they were the hated enemy of King David and Jonathan and Saul and that whole group, right? And their most, the most famous Philistine was Goliath, the, the giant that David killed. The Philistines continued to be a problem, really, for Israel, leading up to this time where this monster from the north, 
came in and began to deal with them. This is the Assyrians. They continued to be a player in the politics of this region until they were eventually wiped out by the Assyrians themselves. Not much is known about them outside of the biblical account, really. But archaeology does match up with the biblical account. Not that we need archaeology to inform us, but of course archaeology is always informed by the scriptures and we see that to bear itself out. We know what's going on with Philistia at this time because we are given the precise year, the year that King Ahaz died, which was probably around 715 B.C. is what most people think. If you remember, Ahaz is one of the kings that lived in Isaiah's time, and he sought an alliance with Assyria. He was being attacked by the northern kingdom and Syria in the north, and so he actually went to the Assyrians and sought help from them. And of course the Assyrians were always willing to receive things even though they weren't always willing to help. Uh, Ahaz is dead now. And now the king is Hezekiah. And after him, or and with him, they will not be joining with Assyria. So Philistia is seeking others that will join against or join with them against the Assyrians. And that's kind of what you see here in this the end of this prophecy. It also shows what Judah's answer is concerning their request. And so as we get into this, we're going to continue to see this pattern that is well established in this book, that God has a plan that is always good. Man has a plan that sometimes runs sideways of God's. When that happens, man's plan fails. Every time he finds out that it's really no plan at all. It doesn't mean that we always like God's plan, but it is always accomplished no matter what. And it's always the right thing every time. The reason I decided to take these two together is because I think it shows this exact comparison, man's plan versus God's plan. I think that's helpful for us. And so with that, let's look at the first point, the plan of God for Assyria. If you look through these first few verses, 24 through 27, and if I were to ask you to find a common theme, you could probably do so pretty easily just by looking at the most common big word that you see there. It's the word purpose. It's the word plan. Verses 24 and 26, the, the Lord of hosts has sworn as I have planned, as I have purposed, the purpose that is Purposed. The Lord of hosts has purposed. There's a pretty tight theme going on in these few verses, I would say. We've already discussed at length what God's plan for Assyria is. He plans to judge them. But first, what does he plan to do with them? He's going to actually use them to judge his own people. The Lord kind of mentions Assyria as a tool that he is going to use to judge his own people. If you remember, he compares them to an axe that is being used to cut down the forest, the forest being his own sinful people. Well, now the Lord is going to cut down the Assyrians themselves for their sins as part of his own plan. I want to focus our attention mostly on verses 26 and 27. This is the purpose that is purposed. Concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed and he will annul it. 
His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? This is his purpose for the whole earth. Of course, the whole earth in this case does have to do with all of us, but if you look at the context back then, it's really going to be all of these nations that are getting ready to be mentioned and that have been mentioned beforehand. This is his purpose. What is his purpose? Well, you could go back from 13.1 to see that as he began talking about Babylon. The idea that any nation that sides against God or does their own thing is siding against God and it's not going to be good for them. There is no middle ground. We, them, anyone that is his creation cannot look at God and say, yeah, God, I see that you're there. I know that you're there. I don't plan on listening to you, but I won't get in your way and you won't get in mine. There's no conversation like that with God. We're not able to say, you know what, God, you do your thing. I'm going to do my thing and that's okay. No, for us to say, God, I'm going to do my thing is to set ourselves against him. There's no middle ground. We can't just kind of ride the fence and hope everything is okay. There's no neutrality. You're on his side or you are his enemy. Turn with me to Psalm 33 as we look at this. We looked at the first part of Psalm 33 in our call to worship this morning. I want to read for us verses 6 through 17 and I want you to see this theme developing start at verse 6 by the word of the Lord the heavens were made by his breath of the by the breath of his mouth all their host he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap he puts the deeps in the storehouses let all the earth fear the Lord let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him for he spoke and it came to be He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. The warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue The Lord has his plans. Verse 12 there in Psalm 33 or verse 10. The Lord has his plans. What about the plans of the nations? The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. So this is pretty hard. We don't like to envision God that does this. We want to envision God that kind of sees my thing and and approves of it, no matter what that thing is. Notice, he doesn't consider the plans of the nations while he's making his own. 
He didn't take them into account. He didn't ask Assyria, hey, so how would you guys like to see this happen? Because I'm kind of making my plans for the next several hundred years and I'd really like to see what your input is on this. The Lord does not seek wisdom from his creatures. He is wisdom. He doesn't need any more. He frustrates the plans of the people. Why? Because when their plans run sideways of his, of course it's going to be frustrating. There is no compromise. He's not going to set up a lunch meeting with you so that you can come to some sort of middle understanding. Your plan matches his every time. When it doesn't, you still end up doing the thing that he ordained. You're never going to do something and God's going to say, well, you know, I really didn't have that plan for you. That's not going to happen. It's not possible. His plans are always accomplished. There is no blank space. Every one of your days is planned. Every one of your minutes is spoken for. So you really get verse 12 here, back in Psalm 33. You really feel this as God's people, and I want you to hear this as God's people. When you know the plans of the Lord are what they are, hear this. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom He has chosen as His heritage. I think for us, we live in a Christian culture, a church culture. Our culture is not Christian at all, but thinking of our own church culture, we live in one that makes bracelets out of verses like Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength because we think that that verse is about winning football games. It's not. We love Jeremiah 29.11. Lots of bracelets have made of that one too. I know the plans I have for you. Plans for good and not evil. Plans for a future and a hope. And we think that that's about us getting a nice new car. Or even something more serious like not ever getting sick. I know the plans God has for me and that's for me to never get sick. Or for me to always have a happy marriage. Or for my kids to be successful. And that's not the way this works. If you go to Jeremiah 29, he does want good things for his people. Absolutely. But what did he tell them to do? For 70 years you're going to be in exile. But don't lose heart because I have good plans for you. I have plans for a future and a hope for you. But for 70 years, you're going to be in Babylonian captivity. And while you're there, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go ahead and settle down. I want you to have a family. I want you to make things. I want you to do things. I want you to go about and prosper the city where you live. Prosper the city that you're currently in. That pagan city. Prosper it. Because I know the plans I have for you. For Assyria, it was the Lord's purpose that they received judgment. It would not be thwarted. It's ancient history, literally. You can read that. For us, his plans won't be thwarted either. For his people, they will not be thwarted. What are those hands? What are those plans? Well, we may think and look at our life and think, well, I drew a bad hand. 
So what do we do with that? We trust that we know the one who makes the plans. In Christ, those plans are for us, his people, for a hope and for a good future. What is the only hope that we have in this world? It rests in Christ alone. It's for eternal life with him. The worldly things that we have are going away. They're perishing. The only hope that we have has nothing to do with anything that we can grab a hold of on this earth. The only hope that we have are the things that we have in Christ. Whatever comforts we have in this life are good. They're blessings. We should count them and we should be thankful for them. But the true blessings await us beyond this life. And that is the purpose that he has purposed for those who love him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, in that we have to rest. We have nothing else to rest in. If you're resting in anything else, it's going to dry up. It's not going to be helpful. It's just going to frustrate us. So let us rest in him alone. And quickly, note the plans again for those who are not his. And I want you to hear that this morning, if that's you. Wrath and judgment. And those plans will not be thwarted either. That won't be a big sign at the end when you die that says, surprise, everyone's getting in. It's not how this is going to happen. Those who go against him and side against God will only experience pain and death when they die. Rather than do that, turn to him instead. He's waiting. He's faithful to forgive. He will forgive you. Call upon his name and be saved. Secondly, the plan for Philistia. Look with me back in Isaiah 14, verses 28 and 29. In the year of the year that King Ahaz died, came this oracle. Rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you, that the rod that has struck you is broken. For from the serpent's root will come forth an adder, and from it and its fruit will be a flying, fiery serpent. Kind of what's represented here is the idea that if you read the history of Assyria... You realize that they have these ups and downs with their leadership. They have these momentary bits of weakness with the changing of a monarch or some through death or some sort of takeover. But they always come back strong. They always come back even more potent than they were. Assyria did have those moments of weakness through some sort of internal strife. However, again, once that new power was in place, they always came back with vigor. You start to you see that as you read through the history books in the Old Testament. You see that being played out here. They're this small st- snake, Stark, but from that comes a snake that lays eggs that are fire snakes. So it just gets worse. If Philistia is thinking that they can just wait around for Assyria to get weak, that's not going to happen. Verse 30 shows us the eventual downfall of Philistia. You see that, of course, the Lord, the Lord takes care of the firstborn the needy, but I will kill your root with famine and your remnant it will slay. History teaches us that the Philistines uh, blended in with the Assyrians and they kind of became no more. They were kind of swallowed up by the Assyrian Empire, which was later swallowed up by another empire. Uh, Verse 32 is where I want to focus the rest of our time. It speaks about messengers from The nation, again, the idea that the Philistines were sending messengers to Judah asking for an alliance with them against the Assyrians. Imagine the Philistines asking to ally with God's people. 
What was God's, the response of God's people? The Lord has founded Zion, and in her the afflicted of his people will find refuge. The Philistines are kind of like that doctor who thought it would be a good idea to mix antifreeze with antibiotics. They didn't even test to see if the additive was bad. They just wanted to add it. They didn't even know. Instead of seeking the truth, instead of seeking the truth in the only God, they continued to trust their own pagan gods and they trusted their instinct. And what happens when people like us, like the Philistines, when we trust our instincts, instead of repenting and coming to the Lord and seeking Him, they went to what always worked, and that's this subterfuge and political sneakiness, and they were wiped off the face of the earth for it. The plan of the Philistines was to do their own thing. The Proverbs have a thing that they say about when people do their own thing. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it leads in death. We do well to take notice of that here, church. The rules haven't changed any since this day. They're the same. We were born in sin. We were dead. We are dead in our trespasses, or were outside of Christ. And though we have been made new in Christ, no longer dead, but alive in Him, that sinful flesh is always with us. Will be until we are with Him in glory. We cannot trust ourselves. Jeremiah said it this way, The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? The rhetorical answer is no one. Yet we claim to understand it, and our understanding is always lacking. So where do we turn then when we need understanding, when we need direction, when we need to make big decisions like the Philistines had to make here? Where should they have turned to the only source of wisdom possible? The Word of God continues to shine forth as true, wise, and good. There's never a time where the Word of God has led anyone astray. It will never come away from the Word of God less than what we currently are. It will always add something good to us. It will always shine a light on us and in our current situation every single time. Rather than turn to our own way, let us turn to it instead which we're thankful we have it here recorded for us. And the last point is the plan of redemption. Again, there in verse 32. The Lord has founded Zion, and in her the afflicted of his people will find refuge. It's the plans of the Lord for the people of the Lord to go through difficult times. If you're not sure about that, just keep reading through the Old Testament. It doesn't really get better for his people. It's only in the Lord that they're going to find refuge. Turn with me quickly to Genesis chapter 32. Maybe my favorite story in the Old Testament. I'll say that a lot. So just, there's not a lot of favorites. But this is definitely one of my favorites because it has to do with wrestling. Genesis 32, verses 22 through 32. I'm going to paraphrase just to kind of save us some time. Jacob is at a very low point in his life. Remember, Jacob and Esau were born. They were twins. Jacob came out. He was grabbing his brother's foot, and that's how he got the name Jacob. He was called a supplanter or a deceiver, kind of a, you know, it's kind of a word for sneaky. 
Jacob was sneaky. He definitely lived his life as a sneaky person. And he was at a very low point in his life here in Genesis 32. His brother actually was trying to kill him because he was sneaky. And at this lowest point in his life, we, we read that he has this meeting with Esau, and then he is uh, there, and all of a sudden, verse 22, and the same night he arose and took, let me keep going down here, uh, verse 24, and Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. That's an interesting plot change there. There was just a man there, and they wrestled. Well, this wasn't just any man. It wasn't like he found some old guy and they just started wrestling. This was called the Lord himself. Pre-incarnate Son of God. If you ask me, that the pre-incarnate Son himself was there wrestling with Jacob. At his lowest point, he finds himself wrestling with God incarnate. And the Lord asks Jacob, he says, let me go. He's done wrestling. But Jacob does not let him go. Verse 26. Let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He wasn't going to let God go until he received a blessing. And the Lord asks him a very important question here. What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Think about what this is to Jacob to have to state his name. What is your name? Supplanter. Sneaky. Deception. He's lived up to it to this point in his life. Now he had to admit it to the Lord himself. And what does the Lord do? Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Pretty incredible. This doesn't mean that Jacob should wear like some sort of championship belt having beaten God in a wrestling match. That's not at all what's going on here. It means that Jacob refused to let go. Latching on to the Lord even in his most destitute time, he was awarded a blessing. He won. For Israel, back in Isaiah, the Lord has founded Zion. And in her, the afflicted of the people find refuge. What must we do in these most difficult times? What must we do in any time? If we're to navigate any time at all in our lives, we must cling to the Lord alone. There's nothing else. Everything else is nothing. Do you see what he does with the big nations of the world? The smallest little worldly things that we cling to instead of clinging to the Creator who says, You are my people? We must do that. Even when the times are tough. Where does our foundation come from? Well, he tells us, The Lord has founded Zion. What is Zion? The people of God. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He has founded us. It wasn't because we made the right choice and then went after Jesus. It wasn't that I founded my faith. You know what? This sounds like a really good idea. And I went and found him. No, he found me while I was his enemy. He is the founder of my faith. He went after us. We're not born of the will of man. 
but of the will of God. The purpose that he purposed for us was to be born again in Christ, to be made alive, to walk in the good works that he has prepared for us. What is this plan for us, brothers and sisters? Eternal life. Do we know for certain what will happen between now and then? We have no idea. None. But we do know that he has founded us. He has founded us in him. So in conclusion, let us be a people that cling to God's word. What else would we cling to? What else would we possibly go to? find his will for our lives. Let us be a people who trust in him, the founder of our faith. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, as we struggle with this difficulty, it seems so simple to state why would we trust in anything else but you, but yet we continue to do so. Any sin we ever commit is evidence of that. And so Lord, we pray, help us. Write our wayward hearts, that they would grow closer and closer to you. Teach us more and more what it means to cling to you and receive your blessing. Teach us your ways, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.